Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Nan Turner to tell us about a really fascinating book that she's written, published by Intellect in 2022, titled Clothing Goes to War, Creativity Inspired by Scarcity in World War II. Now, the title does a pretty decent job of explaining what the book is about, but I don't think it fully covers how fascinating it is to read about the many ways that clothing was impacted by the war, all sorts of different things I personally never thought of in terms of supply of materials and how that impacted clothing. Um, And more importantly, and perhaps kind of cooler, how people adapted to this um, in different countries, in different ways. Uh, So Nan, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast to tell us all about it. Hi, Miranda. Thank you so much for inviting me today. Before we dive into your book, though, uh, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit and giving us kind of the backstory? Why did you decide to write this? Uh, Okay. Um, I had a a background in in clothing design. I worked in fashion in New York City for several large companies. And about 10 to 15 years ago, I returned to the University of California, Davis, to get a master's degree in textiles and clothing and to teach. At that time, I was very interested in my father's World War II experience Uh, He had died uh, many years earlier, but my mother had also just passed away. And she had all the photos that my father had from the war. And so like many men of his generation, and as talking to people, I understand most men did not talk about their World War II experience. I think it was something they just wanted to put behind them and to get on with their, their lives. So I did have all these photos somewhere in an album with the names identified when my father played in a big band and was stationed in California, protecting the coast from attack. But when he went to Europe, uh, he did come back with a lot of photos, but they were in a a cardboard box, just loose. And I'm sure many people have these in their attic or somewhere. So I was so fascinated and I worked on sorting them because they came in different sizes, not the size we have today. Some tiny, some a little bit bigger, some stamps on the back. And I had such an interest in this. And I realized that since my father died uh, in 1992, and I was I was doing this when many of the veterans were, were still alive over 15 years ago. And I decided I really needed to, to share this by creating a website. My father was in an engineer battalion in Europe. It was called the 1270th Engineer Combat Battalion, which is the name of the website. And when I Googled that that battalion, nothing came up. So there was nothing on the internet. And I knew I had something important to show and that this would be a way to find other veterans still alive, possibly their children, so I could learn more about my my father's uh, experience. So at the time, I was considering what what to write my master's thesis about, and my professor suggested uh, World War II. And since my my degree was going to be in textiles and clothing, I was wondering, how am I going to adapt my interest to this topic? So I started looking at the literature about World War II, specifically uh, for women. So much is written about men. And I realized 
so much had already been written about fashion. And I met with an author in, in Paris who directed me to consider what was missing in the literature, which was about clothing for just normal, every, everyday people. And on that trip to Europe, I started seeking out people to interview. And uh, the first people I interviewed were actually the people on the cover of my book. And this came from one of my father's photos. He had several photos of, of people, no information. There was a, a last name, but actually I found out it was the wrong last name. That kind of led me astray. And I had discovered them by contacting the historian in the town my father was in England, Weston Supermare. So I was extremely fortunate to, to find them and receive an invitation from them to visit, which I did on, on that trip. And so, so I, I interviewed them. Uh, they had known my father. He had been invited to Christmas lunch at their house because that was a practice during the war years to invite the American soldiers over for a holiday. And one of the very first stories, which turned out to be a very common theme throughout all the interviews I conducted, was the lack of, of fabric. Of course, there was a lack of clothing in the stores to buy, and people started making their own clothes. And one of the women was a horseback riding instructor. And she told me the story of using a nice tablecloth and having that made into a shirt for herself for horseback riding. Uh, so that was the, the uh, origin of my master's thesis, which later I continued working on because there was just, I just had so much information. I was so fascinated that I continued writing for the next 10 years and have published my book, Clothing Goes to War. Hmm. Wonderful. Thank you for giving us that introduction um, to the book and to your interest in the topic of World War II more broadly. I'm wondering if you can maybe help us, I guess, locate kind of where this fits into uh, maybe the more well-known stories around World War II. Um, and I think perhaps one way in is clothes were rationed, clothing was rationed, fabric was rationed. Um, and we there's a lot of literature about food rationing. To what extent was clothing and fabric rationing similar to the systems developed for food rationing, or was it quite different? Well, food and fuel were rationed first. Food was was so so essential to everyone, also to the military. So everything went first to the military uh, so the soldiers could fight and would be equipped for fighting. So food and, and fuel were rationed in in countries, uh, wealthier countries who could actually put together a rationing program, uh, books were, were issued, rationing cards or coupons to be used so people would have their fair share or their allotment of what was available for civilians. And clothing rationing came later when it became apparent that the war was not going to be over by Christmas there was going to be a longer duration and people started to suffer because the clothing wasn't available in stores. So at that time, people's wardrobes were much smaller than they, than they are today. Uh, the world was coming off a global depression in the 1930s. 
which people put people at a, at a disadvantage. People just had not had money to spend on, on themselves. So even though they had fewer clothing then, they had even they were more impacted by the depression years. And clothing was more expensive then as a percentage of budget because it wasn't outsourced to a third world country as it is today and made by people earning very, very little money. And even when you think about the houses people lived in, their, their closets were smaller. We have, we have huge closets now, and most people have a lot of clothing because it, it's so cheap. So most of us, I think, could go through several years just wearing our, our clothes and having them not wear out. But uh, at that time, people had small wardrobes and, and clothing wore out. Uh, one woman I interviewed who uh, was from Italy said that when her father was inducted in the, in the army, the men were ordered to drop their trousers. And many of them, including her father, weren't wearing any underwear because they didn't have any underwear. They, they were, there was just so much poverty at, at that time. So uh, when it became apparent that people had, that governments had to start rationing, uh, at first they didn't even have the ration ticket. So people were allowed to use their f- one of their food tickets for clothing, but later it turned into actual ration cards and ration tickets uh, for clothing. And also, especially in Great Britain and the United States, the government set up departments to actually work on this this clothing rationing and and how this could go about so everybody could get uh, a fair share. Another aspect of rationing was that it prevented people buying up limited amounts of of products and selling them on on the black market at really, really high prices. So that was another aspect of trying to give people their share of limited production. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And I think as you described the context of kind of, well, rationing doesn't impact everyone the same. It depends on kind of what you're coming in with in terms of clothing and expectations of clothing. So that context is incredibly helpful for us to understand in addition to kind of what was done with the war. One thing I was really fascinated by reading the book is that it wasn't just kind of, okay, there's limits on items of clothes or amount of fabric. There were even more kind of specific guidance provided about like particular types of, I don't even know, particular kind of ways of constructing a sleeve um, or different ways you could construct a garment. It wasn't just the idea that kind of all coats are treated the same, for example, from a rationing perspective. Can you tell us more about kind of the style details, I suppose, that were regulated or eliminated as part of this rationing system? Uh, Yes. Well, on the cover of my book is a picture of, of the family who my father knew and there's a, a gentleman. Uh, he was in the uh, he fought in the in the war for British um, military, but he was home for Christmas, and he's wearing a double-breasted suit, and his trousers have cuffs. So this is off, obviously a suit he had from from before the war, because double-breasted suits were eliminated for men and women because that's an use of excess fabric. It's actually a waste of fabric just for the style and men's cuffs 
the cuffs on men's trousers were eliminated, which uh, became an issue. Men, men really didn't like that. Other things that were eliminated uh, that really people wouldn't notice was often on a yoke, like a yoke on a shirt, is a double layer of fabric. It has another layer inside. And so that layer uh, would be eliminated just to reduce the use of fabric, unnecessary use of fabric. And when you think about women's style in the 1940s, skirts were shorter or sometimes slightly above the knee, touching the knee, and the silhouette was slimmer. And that was not a fashion style. That was to use less fabric, to use as little fabric as, as was possible. So all these things were regulated in Great Britain. And it was very interesting when I was studying uh, fashion magazines, I did a lot of, of referencing fashion magazines uh, in libraries in France, Great Britain, and in the United States. And the magazine stopped showing the latest fashion. They started showing how you could get by with less, how you could make do with what you had, maybe make some garments out of your husband's uh, suits were in the closet that were in the closet while he was off fighting, fighting the war. And they also showed examples, like you mentioned, the sleeve, like a woman's blouse could, could be made often with a lot of fabric. Sleeves require a lot of fabric, but if it was very full at the cuff, that would create uh, even the use of even more fabric. So sleeves had to be cut down. They had to be slimmer. Pleats and skirts couldn't be a deep pleat. It had to be a very shallow pleat. And that contributed to this very narrow silhouette. See, those are the sorts of things I'd never thought about. Um, but it's really interesting, especially the idea of kind of how magazines um, are part of this as well. But it then get, brings up the question of kind of, well, it's one thing to tell people to do this, but how easy actually is it to suddenly make more of your own clothes or make for the first time all of your own clothes? How was home sewing impacted by rationing? Well, many women already made clothing at home. Uh, this was very important during the 1930s. Many more people lived on, on farms uh, during that, that era. And they often would use uh, feed sack fabrics for, for their clothing. But during the war, when most seamstresses had been called up and were sewing in, in factories or even in small shops were working for the military, wealthy, wealthier women who had never learned how to sew started taking sewing classes and they became uh, very popular. But fabric, fabric wasn't available. Also, like thread wasn't available. That's something you really don't think about. The thread also was being used up by the military, as well as different trims for clothing. For example, zippers. Zippers used metal. They weren't available either. So women had to be very resourceful and look for other sources of, of fabric. I interviewed an Australian woman who was from a well-to-do family and, and they had a seamstress and her, her family had abundant clothing, 
So the seamstress would take apart the clothing they had from before the war that might might be uh, outdated and make it into uh, other garments, especially for children. So um, it was a problem for children who were growing up and growing out of their clothes and needed to have clothing that fit. So often their clothing was made out of an adult's uh, garment. I interviewed a woman in, in Germany and all her clothing had been made out of adult garments and usually that had been worn until they were nearly worn out. And she didn't understand till later in life when she kind of put this together, why her clothing always wore out so quickly because it was made out of fabric from an adult's garment that was already worn out. Hmm. Yeah, that that would cause it to wear out more quickly, definitely. You mentioned food sacks as clothing materials, um, and I wanted to ask a bit more about this. Uh, Can you tell us some of the ways kind of they were used? To what extent were they used as material the same way before the war as during the war? Or did the war kind of change how they were used? Um, And how what were some of the kind of implications and connotations of clothing made out of this material? Well, during the 1930s, people really made an effort not to waste anything. So they used everything they they had. And so people might remember their parents or older generations saving, saving rubber bands, making a ball out of rubber bands, saving strings, saving jars, just saving everything that, that can have a use. And I think sometimes these people are considered hoarders, but there's a reason for that because there is such scarcity. And many more people lived on farms And so they would use the fabric from the sacks they got of um, chicken feed, flour. Everything came in cloth sacks. This was before the uh, use of of plastic for, for everything, for all the containers. And so starting out, these sacks were uh, undyed, natural color, and they were printed with the company label. And it was very hard for people to remove this label because you didn't really want that on your clothing. It also was, there was a stigma of wearing clothing out of uh, feed sacks. Um, you know, so people I interviewed who grew up in these kind of rural communities told me they didn't feel any stigma about having less than their neighbors because pretty much everybody Uh, was kind of in the same boat of not really having a lot of money. But there were people more well-to-do, and sometimes it was a stigma to have your clothing made out of of feed sacks. So um, it would take maybe a couple sacks to make a garment, but some things came in smaller sacks, and this could be used for for underwear. And I interviewed a a woman who told me most of her clothes were made out of feed sacks, And it was especially embarrassing for her if she had underwear on and was playing in the playground as a young child. And if anybody caught a glimpse of the feed sack stamp on her underwear, this was just very, very uh, embarrassing. But later, the feed sack manufacturers realized that the feed sacks were actually a source of marketing and they could sell more of their product if they uh, 
appealed to the farm wife. So they started making the label so they could be easily removed. They started dyeing the feed sacks in colors, attractive colors, and even creating floral, floral prints. And I remember as a child seeing large bags of, of rice in the grocery store, and they were printed in very pretty floral prints. And now if you look to buy this kind of fabric, like sold on eBay, it's very expensive. It's, it's considered fashionable. And I learned recently that sometimes the feed sacks were even printed with em- embroidery patterns. So you could embroider your garment as, as well. Uh, but it was considered a sign of, of poverty to be dressed in a feed sack garment. And the woman I interviewed in Kansas told me that she she didn't have a store-bought garment until she started working in a, in a lo- local variety store and earned her own money and could buy a store-bought dress. And it was only then that she really appreciated her mother's sewing ability and the clothing she had growing up because she found that the store-bought clothes just didn't fit as well and didn't look as good as what her mother had made for her. Hmm. And of course, now, as you said, um, feed sack cloth is fashionable once again, even if it hadn't been before. So interesting how things change kind of with different perspectives and time. Obviously, feed sacks are maybe not something we'd think of immediately as being related to clothing creation, though, as soon as you realize that, as you said, they weren't plastic back then, it makes somewhat more sense. Um, But perhaps another unexpected material, more unexpected material, would be rubber. Um, Rubber scarcity going towards the war effort and therefore being less available for women's clothing in particular. What role did rubber play for women's clothing and how did people adapt to it not being possible? Well, rubber was used, of course, for elastic and uh, this was natural rubber, and it was not available anymore after Japan attacked uh, the countries on, on D-Day, uh, the far eastern countries where rubber r- was produced. But most importantly for women was that they were not considered well-dressed or correctly dressed unless they wore a corset or, or a girdle. So the reason was their body, the form of their body was not supposed to show under their clothing. So they wore dresses, they wore a slip, and they wore a girdle. So everything was pretty much hidden. And most people didn't have a lot of corsets or or girdles. And so they had to take care of them so that they would last for, for the war. And to do that, and this is something that the fashion magazines would it would give instructions how to care for your all your garments so that they're going to last and uh, rubber had to be rubber the rubber in your girdle or your corset had to be hand washed very carefully rolled up in a towel and then dried flat so that the rubber wouldn't wear out and they also had to alternate alternate wearing the corset so one one wouldn't uh, wear out uh, there were corset companies that made the corsets without rubber. That was a, a older technique before the use of rubber in garments. And so that was made with uh, boning or lacing, which kind of like Scarlet O'Hara and Gone with the Wind, which would be laced and tightened to give the right silhouette. 
And so they would use this as a marketing technique to show customers that their garments didn't have uh, rubber and could be available to buy. Also in a very limited quantity because of the lack of supplies, a lack of fabric. And also most corsets and girdles use some uh, metal too, which, which was limited. So that was really a problem for women. And then when it came to uh, elastic, uh, these women I met in, in England, they told me that they used a parachute fabric for, for clothing. And there were small parachutes that came down with doodle bugs, which is a kind of bomb. So they were smaller. And so they were good for uh, underwear and they were silk, but they didn't have elastic so that the, uh, the underwear had to, they had to sew ties onto the underwear to keep it on instead of elastic like we have now. Hmm. Trying to imagine using a parachute now for such purposes. <laughs> Absolutely fascinating adaptation. My next question is about perhaps my favorite creative um, thing that you talk about in the book. I know I'm not meant to pick favorites, but this one really might be it for me. Um, how and why did women find creative ways to replace stockings? Well, I, th I think that is one of the most popular World War II era stories. And uh, that's a story my mother told me about when she was in, in college in her sorority, that they would help each other to draw the seam down the back of their leg. So stockings at that time, mainly silk. A nylon had been invented only in 1939. And uh, for a short time, nylon stockings were available. They also were seamed down the back because the stockings were made flat and then the seam was sewn up the back. And so this was a, a fashion point. It was very attractive on women's legs to have that, that line to the, down the back of your leg. And also right above your heel, there was a little reinforcement called a clock. And that also could be very decorative. But to uh, look like you had stockings on, people would draw that line down the back of the leg with a, a eyebrow pencil. Another benefit of stockings is it adds a nice color to your legs. So women found a way to get around that too. Uh, I even heard that sometimes they would use a little leftover gravy on their legs or they would use face makeup, but it's going to take a lot of, of face makeup. It's kind of wasteful. So uh, makeup com companies realized that there was a market for leg makeup and they started selling actual leg makeup for your legs to look like that uh, you had stockings on. Wow, what a great story. Um, if I may, you mentioned uh, before we started recording that you're doing an event soon. This might be a relevant time to mention it, given what you've just told us. Okay, well, I'm doing event, an event in, uh, Sa in San Francisco on October 12th. And this is with a group I'm involved with, the Art Deco Society of, of California. So a lot of our members and people are being encouraged to come dressed in 1940s fashion. And we're going to have a little um, exhibit and allow everybody to practice drawing the line up the back of, the, of their leg. And some of the organizers have been asking me, well, you know, is there a special method to doing this? And I don't, th I don't think there is. I think people just 
did their best to draw the line down the back of their leg. In some images, we found that there's a, a little tool uh, that people put together somehow, it wasn't sold, that would trace down the side of your leg and try to get this line even. But we haven't been able to find that at all. So I think pretty much people just did it asking a friend who had a steady hand to, to draw the line. And I've tried to do it just myself. And it works pretty well, more, more or less. And I've shown people... And sometimes they say, well, well, you know, what am I looking at? You're, you're wearing seam stockings and didn't even realize it's just an eyebrow pencil line. <laughs> well, that sounds like quite a fun thing to experiment with um, and a surprisingly successful one. So maybe some listeners will turn up at the event uh, on October 12th. I'd love to ask you, however, about another um solution really to at least one thing the problem of not having stockings um because of course one option is well don't wear a skirt wear trousers instead then you don't need stockings but of course who wore slacks when where etc was still a contested topic so can you tell us a bit about how the appropriateness of slacks was defined how this changed over the course of the war well women were not considered ladylike unless they were wearing a, a dress, a skirt. And pretty much women all over the world wore, wore dresses, skirts, all the time. Pants really weren't considered a, appropriate. And women were encouraged, women in the military were also encouraged when they went out in the evening not to wear their uniform. And the reason was because men like to see them in in dresses. And one idea about the war was to encourage men who are off fighting, fighting for the women back home. And women were encouraged to show this feminine look in a, in a dress. Women were not considered feminine if they were wearing trousers. Fashion designers had started showing trousers, but they were usually uh, for more high-end high-end women. And trousers were considered appropriate for a certain activity. For example, hiking or skiing or doing um, some kind of sport, but not, not for everyday wear. Uh, even in, in factories, sometimes women worked in, in dresses. But trousers, women started to realize that trousers were much more practical for a lot of things like like working in a factory, you're actually safer in trousers and more comfortable. And in the military, women were sometimes not even issued trousers with, with their uniform. And there was a movie I write about in my book, a British movie about women in the military. And they're shown wearing skirts almost all the time, but they do have to... Um, a lot of them were truck drivers and they had a very important mission and they had to drive these trucks through the night in the rain to deliver their, their cargo. And on the way back, they traveled on a train with other soldiers and many of them had to sleep on the floor in the train. And when they got back on the train, they had their skirts on again. They dressed up to look feminine again because that's how women were, were supposed to look. And even after the war, women started wearing dresses all the time. Dior's new look came back 
was a big, big hit. Uh, for one reason, women wanted to be to look feminine again, and uh, to to be women. There was a, this whole move. Everybody wanted to have the simple, safe life, to get married, to have children, to live in a, in a nice home. So um, slacks didn't really catch on right after the war. It took almost another generation for women to really start wearing slacks again. And I interviewed a lot about a lot of women about when they started wearing slacks. And there was a wide variety of answers from a, a woman who said when she first got her first pair in the 1930s, she loved them and she always wore them to a woman in her 90s who told me, no, she never wore slacks. And I looked at her and she was wearing a skirt and I realized I had never seen her in slacks. She just never adopted them. Wow, that's pretty intense. Um, but given kind of the pressure of it, that you know, that really does get embedded. I wonder if you can tell us about um, perhaps the type of event where it might be the most noticeable um, to have constrained clothing and fabric choices, um, which is, of course, the wedding and the wedding dress. Given how much symbolism and tradition is often put into those particular garments, what sorts of creativity did people use? What sorts of symbolism was developed um, to kind of deal with the lack of fabric, with the restrictions, with the clothing rationing, but also still wanting to have something like the pre-war concept of a wedding dress? Well, this was a big topic of conversation in my research. I was based in the United States. I did travel to, to Europe a couple times for my research, but I really, I realized that in the United States, uh, we were not affected that much by shortages. Some people I, I talked to didn't even know that clothing was rationing uh, shoes were rationed in the United States, but the clothing rationing was done behind the scenes at the production level. So I realized I needed to find people from all over the world because it was a, a global war and all countries were, were affected. I wanted to hear from uh, both sides. And I was really fortunate to find a, a local group, uh, the War Brides Group who were women who had married uh, American soldiers during World War II and who had come back to the United States to, to live their lives. And so these women uh, formed, formed a group all over the United States because they had so much, so much in common in this experience of leaving their, their home and coming to the United States. So there were German women, French, English, Australian, Japanese, Filipino. It was just a, a wonderful opportunity to learn about that time. And so for many of them, the wedding dress, planning the wedding was uh, a big thing in their, in their lives. And often the wedding was planned very, very, very quickly because during that time, it was just such a, a fleeting feeling and you, you didn't know, were you gonna survive? Was your fiance gonna, going to survive? And um, men serving the military usually got married while they were on leave, which could be uh, a week or, or two weeks. And often they got uh, called back very, very quickly and, and had to go. 
So I learned a lot about weddings from these women. And the, the white wedding dress, often in satin, was something that uh, many, many women uh, as- aspired to. And some, some a- many actually were married in this kind of dress. But there were all kinds of stories of how they, how they, how they got the dress. Uh, one woman, uh, her husband-to-be, contacted his family in the United States and asked them to send his, his sister's dress in hopes that it, it would arrive in time. And um, it's just a lovely story how it arrived just a couple days before. And they also sent um, a headdress. They sent cake flour and just all kinds of things to so- supply the wedding because everything was, was scarce. Uh, often women would pool their uh, rationing tickets for, for clothing or for, for the fabric and help the bride to get what she needed as well as food for the, the wedding to get what she needed for, for her wedding. And parachutes were very popular to use. Silk, white silk parachutes were often used to make uh, wedding dresses because they were just yards and yards and yards. And it was a, a beautiful fabric. But I did, uh, one woman I, I talked to, she got married in just a, a nice blue day dress that she happened to have. And uh, she, she, just the thought of getting, getting married in a parachute that had been found on the ground somewhere, maybe had belonged to a German soldier who had been killed. And sometimes they, ha- they had to be cleaned to remove, remove blood. Uh, that just horrified her, so she refused to wear that that kind of dress. And then others got married in um, maybe a, a curtain or just some fabric they had to make the wedding dress. And it was very common to use mosquito netting, especially in Australia, New Zealand, uh, for for the veil. But I think even the fact of of getting getting married uh, was was a good way to plan for a, a return to peace, having faith in, in the future, the war would be over and people would, would again have a peaceful life, just living with their husband, ha- having children and having um, something to look forward to after the years of war. Hmm. And of course, decades later to have a fascinating story about the materials that their dress was made out of. You mentioned uh, earlier briefly, and I'd love to go into more detail about um, how your book in one section looks at how this clothing scarcity and rationing was represented in popular media. Um, And of course, the example that jumped out of me to me in the book is the film The Wizard of Oz. How can we see these topics we've been discussing in that film? Well, The Wizard of Oz came out in uh, 1939. So right before the war. So it really reflected what was going on in the United States, even though it had been written in the early 1900s. And it took place in the movie and in the book, it took place in Kansas, but actually had been based on the author's experience in uh, South Dakota during a period of, of drought, which is very similar to what was going on in the 1930s during the Depression and also during the Dust Bowl in the 1930s. So in the movie, 
as well as in the book. Dorothy only owned two dresses. Uh, and in the movie, we see her in the same dress, that, that, that gingham dress she wears the, the entire time. And so that would be very common for a girl growing up in a farm in Kansas to only have maybe maybe two dresses. And uh, I assumed her dress was made by her aunt, aunt Auntie Annie M, which would have been would have been very realistic. And I actually got to see an actual costume that Dorothy wore at the Hollywood Museum in Los Angeles. And I noticed that it had a fold near the hem where it had been let down. The skirt length had been let down. And that would have been very common for a little girl growing up in, on a farm that her clothes, Auntie M would have saved every scrap of fabric and would have used everything to allow her to wear the dress for, for many, many years. So I, I researched this fact and I met with the director of the museum and um, we weren't able to find anything in the literature to support my idea, but um, she confirmed that this was probably very, very, very probable. But there were many uh, versions of this dress made for Dorothy because during filming, uh, one had to be cleaned. And so there were quite a few made. They, not all of them had this, this crease. But I also was thinking that the costumers who made the costume used the practices of not wasting. And so if there was a a remnant of the fabric that they were using that was creased, they would go ahead and, and use that. Hmm. Another book that refers to scarcity and the use of fabrics was uh, Gone with the Wind. And I had done a lot of research on Gone with the Wind, but I eliminated it from the book because of the current social connotation of the book. Uh, Gone with the Wind is actually an anti-war book very, very popular. And the film also came out in 1939. And so it's about the, the civil war, but relates to any, any wartime. And it, it refers to the practices of turning a garment, which is a story I heard quite a, a bit about of ripping out all the seams of a garment and turning it inside out and remaking it showing the inside of the fabric that hadn't, hadn't been worn. And another very common practice referred to in this, this um, in Gone with the Wind was turning collars and cuffs, which was very common. So if the cuff had gotten frayed, it could be turned and, and, and cut down and remade to eliminate that frayed edge. Huh. As the subtitle of the book suggests, right? Creativity and adaptation. I'm wondering, this book is obviously available for people to read. Um, the website that you run to collect uh, memories of World War II focused on the battalion your father was in. That link is in the show notes. Um, and you have the upcoming event where including perhaps learning how to um, draw stocking replacement lines. That's rather a lot of things uh, to be working on? Is there anything else you might be working on or anything else you'd like to tell us about kind of your work now that this book is out? Well, I'm continuing to do research on my father's World War II experience. 
And uh, so these soldiers, World War II soldiers, are now really getting up there in in age. And I have been able to find uh, a few along the way. And a couple years ago, I I found a man uh, who uh, was in in Hollywood, and he was an an, an actor. He was mainly a voice actor, and he um, I got to talk to him on the phone while he still was able to talk on the phone. And he told me he had been the voice of uh, Yogi Bear, a cartoon character. But when I I went to his memorial, which it was at the in Hollywood at the uh, the, the Veterans Hall, which was built in 1927, and, and really wonderful to see that. And he had been uh, really active in the later part of his life, um, um, telling his story about his involvement in, in World War II. And he actually was the voice for uh, a duck, not for Yogi Bear, named uh, Webster Webfoot, and he had his, had his show. And I... I was sorry I didn't get to meet him um, because of COVID mainly, but it's been really interesting to 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 um, find out about these men and hear from their children about about the war. And I've learned a lot about my father's World War II experience. And this summer, I went back to Weston Supermare because I I knew uh, the, the women who knew my father still living in the house where he had been invited to uh, lunch, we're not going to be around uh, too much longer. So it was really great to to see them again and talk about their experience uh, during, during the war and to visit that town where my father had been for about six months uh, during the war. And so I do have a lot of photos of the town. And I had one photo uh, taken in a bar near where they were billeted in a, in a hotel right on the waterfront. That must have been nice. And uh, the bar, I found the bar really pretty much un, unchanged. And I went there and I had a beer and I talked to the owner. I went several times and uh, shared these photos with them. And they had the same beer pumps in there. They'd been moved to the other side of the bar. The bar was totally unchanged. And they still had these pumps and they were for beer that was not chilled and was not um, bubbly like American uh, beer, but they were still functioning. And so they're going to put up those photos in in the bar. So they have other historic photos, but they didn't have anything from the World War II era. And I'm still still trying to uh, get more information about what life in that town was like when my father and all these... uh, these soldiers were there. I went to the museum. There's very little about the war. And I realized that Great Britain has such a long history that um, the war was actually a, a small part of it. But I think it would be interesting if um, I could contribute to the, the town history with all these photos I have of what was going on when my father was there. Wow. Well, that sounds like a fascinating project and very much related to the book we've been discussing. Again, the title is Clothing Goes to War, Creativity Inspired by Scarcity in World War II, published by Intellect. Nan, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you so much, Miranda. This has been really fun and I really appreciate being invited to do this today.